This week's episode is brought to you by the Communa Cruise. Spend a fabulous Disney cruise with us December 5th through 9th, 2016 on the wonderful high seas going to the Bahamas. For more information and for a quote, send an email to communicorweekly at fairygodmother.com and tell them that we sent you. Hello and welcome to Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show and home of the world's first pair of independently born identical twins. I'm George. And I'm Jeff. And I know last week, like I stumbled a little bit, I kind of like was on a track and then I got off track because I didn't know what I was saying. But this week, I know what I'm saying. I wanted to say that I got a lot of comments already. We get, we get a lot of emails about last week's episode about the first part of Freedom Land. So we're glad that you guys appreciate that we appreciate other theme parks, especially Freedom Land. We got a lot of weird memories from folks who actually went to Freedom Land. Um, I was wondering what you were talking about getting off track with. Well, like the banter or the, the, well, that's kind pretty of, much all we do. You know, I mean, we get off track all the time. We, I mean, we get sidetracked literally every subject that we talk about. But I had a very specific thing in mind right now, and you already got me off track again, oh. which I didn't want to do, but then we did. Oh, let's just... Forget you it. need Forget a gag it. order is what you need. We do. We do. We should just not let's be able to talk during the talk intro. for the and next minute. Yes. Yes. So okay. in that event, let's just go to the history segment. It's time for Theme Park History. In episode 213, we began our look at Freedom Land, which was a theme park in the Bronx in New York City. And it was themed after American history. And the theme park was the brainchild of Cornelius Vanderbilt Wood, who was formerly the president of the Walt Disney Company in the 50s. And we left off the segment as we went over the seven differently themed areas, but we failed to mention the one area that they added in 1962. And this eighth area was called the State Fair Midway, which added the Astro Ride, which was a space-themed uh, roller coaster, the Harbor Tugboats, and the Wrigley Worm. And then they planned on adding additional areas themed after the state of Florida and one called Movie Lot, uh, obviously after Hollywood, but they just never got around to it. So when the park opened, um, all-day admission was $1 for adults, $0.75 cents for teenagers, and $0.50 cents for children. Special ticket books that included admission and access to nine attractions cost $3.50 for adults, $3.20 for juniors, and $2.50 for children. So even there, they're changing their terms. And it was open from 9 a.m. until midnight. And Freedom Land's first season from June through September 1960 counted one and a half million visitors. An impressive number, but less than the five million that the owners expected. Now, contrary to some public and private opinion at the time, and, you know, even today, Freedom Land was not the entertainment flop that everybody thought it was. You know, 1.5 million during the first year is an awful lot of people. And, you know, attendance really remained strong during the subsequent years. But, you know, now it's now believed that management downplayed actual numbers and kind of used this as a reason to close the park later on. Um, it was, however, the entire park, it was plagued with problems basically from the get-go. Yeah, in its opening season, they had already begun to run into major problems, 
both financially and otherwise. On June 25, 1960, almost a week after the park opened, a stagecoach overturned in the Great Plains section of the park, injuring 10 people. Three of the victims were hospitalized, including one with a snapped spine. The park initially denied any responsibility until a visitor publicly released a photograph of the accident, and eventually the injured parties filed lawsuits against the park. Two months later, on August 28, 1960, the front office was robbed of $28,000 by four armed men who escaped in a boat. They were caught two weeks later and jailed the following year. So, by the end of the 1961 season, Freedomland was already $8 million in debt. And as it struggled to break even, uh, the theme of the park was kind of changed in an effort to appeal more to teenagers. The history exhibits and events would be joined by more conventional uh, amusements, such as bumper cars, roller coasters, you know, firework displays, and concerts, which you know, kind of really broadened the appeal of the park overall. And these changes resulted in a lawsuit from Benjamin Moore, a paint company that sponsored an exhibit in Satellite City. They sued for $150,000 in damages and wanted to avoid their lease for the exhibit space owing to, quote, historical and educational, unquote, changes to the park's character and becoming a hub, again quoting, for commonplace and vulgar mass unrestrained teenage entertainment. End quote. Uh, the suit was later dismissed by the courts. That sounds like a Kunukur Weekly review. It does. <laughs> so managers tried to uh, recoup the losses um, they were facing, and they hoped customer turnover throughout the day would kind of guarantee a profit, even with the ch uh, cheaper ticket prices. They hoped that maybe people would come in in the morning and then get tired and leave in the mid-afternoon, <laughs> just in time for new customers to make their way there and spend the evening. The customers, however were much smarter than that, and they knew a good deal when they saw one, and they basically stayed from opening until closing, basically to get all their money's worth. And during its second season, Freedom Land introduced many discounts into coupons uh, to attract more visitors, even as the base price of admission went up to $250 for an economy ride ticket. The concerts in the Moon Bowl were included, though making the ticket a steal nonetheless. Unfortunately, attendance continued to dwindle over the next four seasons. Lingering debt from the park's construction and its off-season closure between October and May each year continued to put Freedom Land in the red. So the overwhelming success of the 1964-1965 New York World's Fair in New York is often cited as the main reason for the decline in the attendance at Freedom Land. However, there's a lot of historians believe that the fair actually helped the park and, you know, giving them an excuse to scale back a little bit and, you know, not expand that year and begin to convert the site into the world's largest cooperative housing complex, as was their original plan with areas of the swampland that were not being used for the park. So you see, during the 1950s, the city's political and business leaders had determined that homes eventually would be needed for residents fleeing the urban areas of the Bronx, hoping to find a simpler, more affordable, and more suburban place to live. They wanted to keep residents in the borough and attract others to that area, so developers focused on the undeveloped marshland in the Northeast Bronx, where Freedom Land took up only a small portion of that land. Certain conditions needed to be addressed before housing construction could begin on the property. And the timely arrival of the idea for Freedom Land by C.V. Wood was kind of incorporated into this plan. And the blueprint allowed Freedom Land to operate on a portion of the property for five years and five years only. So four and five story buildings were constructed on the converted marshland to house the attractions. And you know, this is all inside baseball now, but it was believed that by remaining intact for five years without incurring damage or settling issues, 
These buildings allowed the developers to receive property variances that eliminated a 15 to 20 year study period before high-rise housing could be placed on the land. However, this plan, together with a variety of complex financial issues affecting the companies with uh, vested interest in the land, basically led to the closing of Freedom Land. And catching the public by surprise, parts of the park began to close during uh, 1964. And on September 15th, 1964, Freedom Land actually fired for, filed for bankruptcy, citing competition from the World's Fair as the reason. And of course, this remains questionable since the World's Fair would be finished after 1965. However, the filing included plans to reduce the park to 30 acres and to construct the housing project on the remaining land. But Freedom Land never opened again in 1965, as stated in their filing. Hmm. So six months after the park filed for bankruptcy, the Co-op City Housing Project was announced to the public by New York City Mayor Robert Wagner. Freedom Land's attractions and supplies were sold to other amusement parks or destroyed as the entire property was prepared for the massive housing project that was built by a combination of housing cooperatives, labor unions, and civic organizations. Over the last 40 years, attractions that found homes at uh, other amusement parks have been uh, allowed to deteriorate or been placed into storage. And if you know where to look, though, a few of the original Freedom Land attractions can still be seen at various locations, including uh, The Great Escape in Lake George, New York, um, Clark's Trading Post in uh, Lincoln, New Hampshire, and Cedar Point in Ohio. So interestingly, uh, Freedom Land was built at a time when the traditional New York City amusement area of Coney Island was in a state of continuing decline. The same year that Freedom Land closed, in 1964, Coney Island's last integrated amusement park, Steeplechase Park, was also closed. The site of the former amusement park is now occupied by the largest residential development co-op city, city and the Bay Plaza Shopping Center. Uh, and in 2013, a plaque commemorating the park was installed near its one-time entrance, but everything else is gone now. <laughs> but we still have a plaque. We so. have a plaque, though, guys. <laughs> and we, of course, would love to know more about your thoughts on Freedom Land and if you ever got to visit it or if you have any opinions maybe about the demise of Freedom Land. Go ahead and give us a call on the Communicore Weekly GOAT line at 424-785-4628, 424-785-GOAT. He's a nerd, he's a geek, because we all like to hear him speak. So listen up to the words from his beat. It's George's Book of the Week. So for this week, I've got three Star Wars books that we're looking at this week. And there are three that were just released that are sort of reproductions of the films. And I do mean the original trilogy, episode four, five, and six. And each of these books addresses sort of a different aspect of the Star Wars films. Uh, even though, you know, they are covering three different films, they take three different attacks, so to speak. And the books are geared towards the tween audience, but after reading them, I think any Star Wars fan is really going to enjoy them. They're basically retellings of the films with the author's individual spin on the book, which is pretty impressive. So the first one is by Alexandra Bracken, and it's called The Princess, The Scoundrel, and The Farm Boy. And basically, this one is looking at episode four, A New Hope. The book is divided into three sections, and each of the characters, Princess Leia, Han Solo, and Luke Skywalker, are each given one-third of the book to tell their part of the story. And it might seem sort of odd to offer the story this way, but it really works out well with the overall story arc and how each character uh, is introduced. What I really liked about the way of telling the story was how they were able to integrate the importance of each character throughout the story. 
this, the first book in this series, has a stronger sense of nostalgia than the other two, and it tended to keep the dialogue from the films uh, more in their original context. And the author does mention that some of the dialogue is pulled from the wonderful BBC radio dramas, so it does offer a little more insight into the overall story. Um, I did enjoy it a lot. It was my least favorite. You know, I didn't mean to offend Alexandra with that one. <laughs> um, but it's, it's, it's almost like reading the book through, except you see it from the different characters' perspective, which was great. So the second book... So the first one is blue. The second one is green with Yoda on the cover. The second one is by Adam... Gidowitz, and it's called So You Want to Be a Jedi. And my answer has always been a resounding yes. yes. Exactly. I thought this was pretty inventive with how the book was presented. Um, my initial thought when I was reading the book was that I wished I'd had this book when I was a young child. I know Jeff doesn't believe I was ever a young child, but still. Nope, never believe it. Because after seeing Empire, I really wanted to be a Jedi. Um, the book strayed a little bit from the film's dialogue, which is what I found so charming about the first book. But it's not a bad thing, but it wasn't what I expected. And what I really, really found was that was amazing about the book was that each of the major chapter breaks, the author presents a lesson on how to be a Jedi. And basically, it's a lesson on meditation and thinking about yourself and your surroundings. No tie-in to any religion, which I really liked, and I didn't think it was anything that any parent would want to keep from their child. And the exercises themselves really made you focus on your breathing, uh, thinking about your body, and, and your reactions to what's going on around you. And uh, some of the lessons involve another person, so you could always get a sibling or a parent in there as well. Um, but what I really liked was when the lessons made you think about other people and how other people would feel about your actions. So it was kind of nice. Uh, the story did tie um, how much Luke did know about the Force into the overall story of the three books. It does focus mostly on what Luke was feeling, and a lot of it, of course, is the training on Dagobah. You know, like we'll see with the third book, the second book really gives us a lot of insight into the inner workings of the characters. We get to see a lot of Luke, Yoda, and Darth Vader, and that famous scene when Luke and Vader battle each other on Cloud City was particularly profound because the author was able to go, sort of go to places within their minds that oh, didn't I thought, get I thought you meant he was going to go to Cloud City. Yeah, we get to go to Cloud City. Oh, it's man. Like, it's like a golden ticket. It changes everything. But, you, know, you get to see the thoughts of the, the characters. But I really liked the lessons in the back. That was pretty cool to, to teach everybody a little bit of meditation. So the third book is, of course, Return of the Jedi. It's got the red cover on it, kind of scary, and it's called Beware the Power of the Dark Side, and it's by Tom Engelberger. And if you're not familiar with Tom Engelberger, he wrote all the origami yoga books. Yoga. Origami Yoda books. <laughs> origami yoga is totally different, just like origami yogurt. That's the Spaceballs version. Um, but his books were funny, and I've seen him speak live before, and he's a great, great author. But anyway... You know, I, I was really surprised to see what he was able to pull off with this book. Tom has a great sense of humor and a wonderful writing story or writing, writing style. It's never like he's writing at too high of a level, but he also never speaks down to anyone in his audience. Um, as I mentioned, he's very funny. It shows up in the book itself. R2-D2 is often referred to as just a, you know, high-end trash can, which is a lot of fun. And Tom knows the Star Wars characters and the Star Wars history inside and out. And anyone that can use Salacious Crumb's middle name 
and tell you what kind of monkey lizard he is. That's kind of awesome, actually. In my book. Um, so what I like about the story is we do see a little bit of the foreshadowing from this in the second book. But Tom takes us inside the mind of the major characters again and gives us a lot of insight that really hasn't been approached or used before. Like during the pivotal lightsaber battle at the end uh, on the Death Star with the Emperor watching, you actually get to say, you get to hear about and read about some of the emotions and the thoughts of Luke, um, as well as Darth Vader and what the Emperor was thinking, which we haven't got a lot of that before. And he really, really changed my thoughts about all the reactions and the motivations for the characters. Um, you know, he, he did this a lot with Princess Leia, with Han Solo, and with even Mon Mothma in some cases. And he talks about the little Ewoks, and he actually made them okay. Cannibalistic? Once. No, yeah, actually. Yeah, because it talks about the whole reason when they were taking Han and Luke and Chewbacca to the village on the stakes. They were going to eat them. Yeah, of course. They were going to eat them. They were going to eat them. It was pretty cool. I mean, they're really seen not so much as teddy bears, but as hunters who are at the top of their food chain on their planet, and then the Empire comes in and takes over their planet, and they don't like it. So the story is tied in so well together, and it's really, really enjoyable. So I highly, highly recommend all three of these books for any Star Wars fan. I think you're going to love them. The first one is nostalgic. The second one teaches you how to be a Jedi, and the third one really takes you inside the minds of these characters and gives you a lot of insight. So before we go... It's The Princess, the Scoundrel, and the Farm Boy is book one. So You Want to Be a Jedi is book two. And Beware the Power of the Dark Side is book three. If it's a legend that you seek, come on and take a peek at the window of the week. This week's window is actually located in Disneyland Paris. So that means we haven't seen it for ourselves yet, but maybe one day we will. Oh. Um, it is Creme de la Creme, Cooking College, specializing in the art of fine French cuisine. Instructors, Howard uh, Gevertz? Sure. Gevertz, sure. And Dave Vermeulen. Sorry, guys. So Howard was the director of food and beverage for Disneyland Paris when it opened, and he was involved in the conception and the planning, production, and opening of all the restaurant and snack carts uh, at the resort. And Dave actually started his career at Disney by serving ice cream at Disneyland. And he moved up throughout the years, assisting Howard with the food and beverage department at Disneyland Paris. He eventually became vice president of resort operations for Hong Kong Disneyland, and then vice president and executive managing director for Walt Disney Attractions in Japan. Sometimes you might see it, sometimes you don't. Hey, look, what's that? It's a five-legged goat. If you're at Disney's Wilderness Lodge at Walt Disney World, be sure to take a good look around the lobby itself. There are these two massive totem poles that are pretty much impossible to overlook, but you may miss out on them if you don't know exactly what you're looking at. Uh, each of the poles is actually 55 feet tall, and they tell their own story. The Raven Pole tells the story of how the Raven put the sun, the moon, and the stars in the sky. And the Eagle Pole tells the story of Bear Chief, who is undertaking the task of educating his nephew, Bear Cub. Now, each character on the poll relates to a specific portion of that story. And if you stop by the concierge desk for a printout, uh, you can get the complete story about the totem poles. And, you know, while those call, tall, colorful poles are taking center stage, 
There are some more subtle characters carved into the log bundles in each corner of the room. There's actually 16 figures carved into the tops of these poles, including a bird and prey on each column. And the iconic American Vault Eagle is featured twice with a different look for each uh, character. So it, it's kind of interesting they play into all that stuff in the lobby. Yeah. And when you said Ravenpole, I thought that might have been a new house in Hogwarts. Oh, no, 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 no. Okay. No, no, okay, not so Ravenpole. Not, uh, that no, would be negative 10 points to Ravenpole. Oh, <laughs> wow. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, we don't want to get any more points taken away from us, so let's move on to our year of a million or so limited time cadets. Yay. So this week's After limited. a year, I get better with these You do. I mean, you kind of stumble sometimes. Sometimes. But... That's okay. No, that's anyway. Right. So... <laughs> so this week's prize is actually a Comedicore Weekly, Comedicore Weekly prize pack. Wow, I can't even say the name of our show. It's been so long. Um, and this week's winner is Nancy L. from Wichita, Kansas. Hooray, Nancy! And as always, there's still plenty of time to get your name in to be part and possibly win in our Year of a Million or So Limited Time Cadets. Just email us at CommunicoreWeekly at gmail.com with your name, address, and birthday so we can send out that prize to you. Still got plenty of great prizes. Yes, we do. Coming up. Yay. We need to give away a Communicore Weekly Fanny Pack once. Ooh, do we have those? As the prize pack. I don't know. We could make one, right? Like a literal prize pack. Yeah, I mean, that would be it. It's a fanny pack. Okay, you get on that prize pack technology, <laughs> fanny pack technology, because <laughs> I want nothing to do with it. We don't have the technology for that yet. So um, <laughs> anyway, thank you guys so much. For watching and listening to another episode of Communicore Weekly. Yeah, however you get the show. If you listen to us on, you know, through a podcast on iTunes, leave us a rating. Or if you watch the video version on YouTube, leave a comment. We'd love to hear from you. Yes, we love the comments. And again, email us at communicoreweekly at gmail.com simply to say hello, enter the contest, send us a photo of some sort, or just say sup, Corey. And of course, you can always like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash communicoreweekly. Yeah, follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Periscope. I'm at Imagine Earning, and he's at Jeff Heimbach. And of course, you can always give us a call, leave us a message on the Communicorically Goat line at 424-785-4628. Yes, and make sure you visit communicorweekly.spreadshirt.com to pick up some of our amazing t-shirts. And always, 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 if you haven't gotten your cadet membership card or your official Community Weekly stickers, send a self-addressed stomped, st oh my god, stomped, stamped envelope. I always do that. To so Weekly, step on it and step then send on it, it to first, you? and then no. put it in the mail. Yes. Communicore Weekly, P.O. Box 432, Orange, California, 92856. And you can always visit patreon.com slash Weekly and help support the greatest online show. For Jeff Heimbuck, I'm George Taylor. And for George Taylor, I'm Jeff Heimbuck. Thanks so much for listening, guys and gals. We'll see you next time on Communicore Weekly, the greatest online show. <laughs>